This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. It's hard to catch a killer if you can't even identify the victim. Without a name, there are so many clues detectives don't have access to. They can't ask if the victim had enemies. They can't know who saw the victim last. They can't question anyone in the victim's life. And so the news last month that the sheriff's office in Marion County now has a name for an unidentified man they found decades ago certainly opens a window where none existed before. Tonight's episode is that story. It begins 32 years ago on Wednesday, July 19, 1989, in Central Ohio. It was a rainy summer day, but that didn't stop two young pals from taking their canoe out on Flat Run Creek, a meandering stream east of Caledonia in the eastern part of Marion County. They put their boat in behind a home not far from the intersection of Ohio 309 and Marion Galleon Road. It was about 11 a.m. when something caught their eye. They spotted a pair of tennis shoes floating in the water near the bank of the creek. They didn't know what they were looking at, but they knew just enough to be disturbed by it. Without investigating further, they called the Marion County Sheriff. Deputies responded and found the shoes. And near them, the man to whom the shoes belonged. They pulled a nearly skeletonized body from some brush that had entangled the remains. They could tell it was an adult, but nothing else was obvious. Not until the remains were sent to the Franklin County Coroner's Office for examination. The pathologist determined the body belonged to a white male, early 30s, 5 foot 9 inches and 150 pounds, with dark brown or black hair, and a slight beard. He was wearing a black and red striped flannel shirt, a multicolor knitted sweater in a diamond design, Dakota blue jeans, boxer shorts, dark red ribbed socks, and black Adidas Continental tennis shoes, size nine and a half. The coroner estimated the victim had been dead for 
three to six weeks, which means he was likely killed in June. The cause of death wasn't clear, but a strange mark by the neck could have been a gunshot or arrow wound. There was also an indication he may have been suffocated. However he died, it was foul play. The sheriff and the police departments from area, city, and villages checked through their missing persons records for anyone that might fit the description, but nothing did. Local officials were increasingly confident that the victim must have come from outside the county since no one was quick to claim him. Detectives pulled out all the tools available to them in 1989. They compared dental records of missing persons who had been brought to their attention. They ran down the labels on the clothing and the shoes as potential identifiers. They sent scuba divers into the creek to look for a wallet or any personal item that might have been lost. They also did a clay facial reconstruction. They released their three-dimensional guess as to what the victim looked like and shared it with the public. Was anyone missing someone who looked like that? Was anyone missing someone who hadn't been seen since about June 1st, 1989? But DNA was not at all a common forensic tool in the late 1980s. It was brand new and expensive. It would have cost the sheriff's office $2,000 back then to test the remains. And even then, unless the deceased had his DNA profile in some sort of state or federal database, at a time when few people did, there would be nobody to match him with. It's like a fingerprint. It's all well and good to have a fingerprint, but it means nothing if you don't have something to compare it to. And so the sheriff decided $2,000 was just too big a part of their budget with limited hope for any benefit, so they didn't do it. A photo of the racial reconstruction ran several times over the next couple of weeks, and deputies followed each and every lead, eliminating them one by one. Finally, the skull was preserved, the rest of the remains were cremated, and nobody came to claim them. They remained in the possession of the sheriff's office. A few weeks after he was discovered, with no news to keep him in the spotlight, the unknown man faded from public view, but not from the minds of local law enforcement, who had given him a name. They called him Luther. There were attempts to pull out the file and try to figure out who Luther was from time to time. In 2007, officials hoped DNA had advanced enough and become affordable enough to give them a true identity. They extracted three of Luther's teeth to retrieve pulp, got a DNA profile, and submitted it to the National Crime Information Center in the hopes of matching it to one of maybe 108,000 people who had been reported missing across the country at that time. But Chief Deputy Al Hayden knew it was a long shot. He told a reporter back in 2007, I don't know that it will make a difference. There are people missing out there who have never had a report made. And he was right. Luther didn't match any missing persons report in the national database. Ten years after that, in 2017, the state attorney general's office offered to have a forensic artist 
take another look at Luther's skull and use advanced processes, including 3D scans and a 3D printer, to recreate his face. Frankly, the 2017 version looked nothing like that old 1989 attempt with putty. Mike DeWine, Ohio's governor now, but back then the state's attorney general, said, this man was someone's family, he was someone's friend, and he is someone who deserves to be identified after all these years. But the image didn't jog anyone's memory. Luther continued to be simply John Doe number 57 on the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigations website. That all changed on October 18 of this year. Using genetic genealogy, with the help of the DNA Doe Project, the BCI, and the FBI, Luther was given his real name. You see, in genetic genealogy, you don't have to wait for DNA to show up in a missing person's database. Instead, forensic genealogists use DNA markers to try and find the victim's family by matching it with relatives who voluntarily upload their DNA profiles to genealogy databases. It can take a long time to figure out a case. In this case, it took two years. But the genealogists at the DNA Doe Project were able to track the man's biological siblings using DNA from that preserved skull. And now we know Luther is John Krasinski, a 33-year-old man from Galleon, Ohio. He'd been living just 13 miles from where his body was found. His family never reported him missing because they believed he had simply moved away to start another life. A brother told authorities John was last seen walking away from his father's house on Cherry Street in Galleon in July of 1989. It was the same month his body was found. Marion County Sheriff Matt Bales said, John had a tendency to just leave for months at a time. He did have some mental illness problems back at that time, and he had a tendency to just leave. The Krasinski family issued a statement thanking the efforts to identify their loved one. Our family members remain hopeful that even after all these years, the truth will be revealed, it read. Anyway, one mystery has been solved. Another remains. Who killed John Krasinski? Sheriff Bells said it won't be easy to learn. People have moved. People have died. We are more than three decades from the day a potential witness might have seen or heard something. Still, cold cases are being solved every day now. Anyone with information is asked to call the sheriff's office at 740-375-8477. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. 
Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.